please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. And to introduce our sermon, I'm going to ask Bobby Nix uh, to introduce a friend of his. And I think that uh, this will set the scene for uh, the passage that we'll look at today. Bobby is our director of recreational ministries here. Walking down a city street, concrete holding up my feet. I see a little black boy trying to sell cocaine. He's just one car in a long freight train. A middle-aged man in his business suit. A sweet-looking girl looking at him so cute. He shakes his head and she asks him why. He fakes a smile as he walks on by. A gray-bearded man like an infant curled. He says to me, it's a cold, cold world. If you'll buy me a drink, it'll make me warm. Got to have something to get me through this storm. They call the place Desire. But the decaying, rat-infested housing project in New Orleans depicted in this song by PCA pastor Mo Leverett is anything but desirable. As a matter of fact, it's one of the biggest pools of despair in the United States. And Mo, with his wife Ellen and his daughter Lindsay, has just dived headfirst into it. They run Desire Street Ministries, an inner-city outreach begun three years ago when they bought a house a few blocks from the project in the Desire community and became the only white family in the neighborhood. Mo coaches football at nearby Carver High, 100% black, and one of New Orleans' most troubled high schools. Desire is a place where violence often rules and hope is a scarce commodity. Murder, theft, prostitution, major drug dealing, and just about any horror you can imagine, it's all there, as common as rain, even among the very young. Police dread walking the the desire beat where gunshots are as normal as traffic sounds and until recently city buses would not even run through it. Mo believes that inner reformation is the key to urban reformation and Kedrick Levy is a perfect example of this. I met Kedrick when I spent three days with Mo in New Orleans last week And Kedrick is already a great friend, and I'm excited that you can meet him today. Good morning. At the age 16, I stole over 200 cars, shot people with the intent to kill, robbed, did mostly everything. At 16, you could say I was one of the ruthless gangsters, but at 16, I also became a member of God's army by Mo Leverett, who recruited me in, in, to come and be a man of God. And I want to say that without Jesus, and I want to thank Jesus and Broadwood for supporting our ministry, because if it wasn't for y'all, we, I wouldn't be standing here right now just telling you how much I love the Lord and how I'm a man of law and, and I'm trusting him with everything I do. And that I fall to my knees and give him the praise. I want to say that 
God is, is my Savior, and I go to Him for all my healing and blessings. And I want to say that I love all of y'all and keep praying for us in our ministry. Thank you. In uh, the book of Joshua, you have Joshua leading Israel to occupy the promised land because there were seven nations greater and mightier than they were in the land. And uh, you have the opening conflict when they attack Jericho, Jericho falls, and then they fight against Ai, and they're defeated, and God shows them it's due to sin in their midst that they have to deal with. Uh, they... We come today to the decisive battle of the entire campaign in this 10th chapter of Joshua. Now you have the start of the conflict in uh, verse 3, where you have a confederacy coming against Gibeon. It uh, says, uh, Wherefore Adonazedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Horham, king of Hebron, and these other kings, and says in verse 4, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon. For it hath made peace with Joshua, and with the children of Israel. And you have a confederacy of five nations, five kings, coming against Gibeon. Now, that was due to Gibeon's uh, entering into a covenant uh, with Israel, with Joshua. Uh, in... The invasion there, the people of Gibeon, one of the cities in the Promised Land, realized that uh, God uh, was with these people and uh, that they needed to, instead of resisting this, make alliance with Israel, become a part of Israel in a sense. And they send to Joshua and uh, ask if they can enter into a covenant. Now, uh, they do this deceitfully. Joshua has been told by God not to make a covenant with any of the nations in the, in the land, but to drive them out. Uh, but they make, they make uh, it appear that they're not from within the land, that they're outside the land and still want to make peace, and mislead Joshua by the way they disguise themselves. They enter into a covenant. Uh, Israel made a serious mistake by not inquiring at the mouth of the Lord by going by appearances. We can do the same thing and not really seeking God's face before we make some serious decision. But having made a covenant, then Israel is obligated to fulfill it and to regard them as a protectorate here. And so uh, they uh, need to come to their aid, and uh, that's what happens. The people there call on Joshua to come to their aid. Verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. Well, you have a parallel in the sense that this world has been invaded by God's invading army. And uh, he offers us to become protectorates, that we can enter into a covenant of grace with him, a covenant of peace with him, 
for He will be our protector. We must surrender our wills to Jesus Christ. The word Joshua is the Hebrew word for Jesus. And uh, so we enter into a relation with Joshua, with Jesus Christ, as we acknowledge that we are no match for God, uh, that we've been rebels against Him, uh, that we need His forgiveness, that we want His grace, and that we believe the claim of Jesus Christ to be God become man, God the Son who came into this world to die for our sins so that God could justly forgive us. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had a plan whereby they could justly forgive us. God the Son would come and take our guilt and pay for it. And on that basis, God would offer every person free, full forgiveness. But we must acknowledge our rebellion and turn from it in true repentance, surrender our wills to a master, to Jesus Christ, and place our faith in him, not just believe his claims, but trust him to forgive us as a gift to clear us legally, to adopt us into the family of God. And when we do that, we're entering into a covenant. Uh, and we become a part of God's true Israel, the church, the true church. Now, uh, as soon as we do that, what happens to them happens to us. Our former friends become our enemies. The world turns upon us. Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Uh, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant's not greater than his master. You become a true Christian and you start to follow Christ. And uh, all of a sudden you find yourself under attack from the world and the devil and the flesh, your, your remaining sinful nature a confederacy against you. And you are no match for that confederacy. That confederacy is stronger than you are, even as a Christian. And so you've got to call in your great Joshua. You've got to do what they did. And not try to resist in your own strength. Soldier, soldier fighting in the world's dark strife. On thyself relying, battling for thy life. Trust thyself no longer. Look to Christ. He's stronger. I can all things, all things do through Christ who strengthens me. Rely on Him as you face those battles. Call in His help. That's what they did. That's what we must do. Uh, Now, they engage in battle. When uh, Joshua arrives, the battle starts. And uh, you have in verse 8... This uh, beginning of the battle and the standing still of the sun that eventuates in the midst of this battle. Uh, The Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. That was his original promise. Remember? When Joshua first gets ready to enter the land, God says, I've chosen you. And he says, As I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you read in the book of Hebrews, 13th chapter, 5th and 6th verse, where that promise that God made to Joshua is made to every believer. It takes that promise, the writer of Hebrews does in the New Testament, and, and says, that's, God's made you that same promise. It says, uh, 
that we're not to be covetous, but to be content with such things as we have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Wherefore, we may boldly say, I will not fear what man shall do to me. No man shall be able to effectively resist you, says God, to Joshua and to you and me. I will be with you. He has that promise as he goes into this critical battle. Now, uh, in uh, verse 9, Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly. He marches all night and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomforted them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon. Notice the interaction there between what Joshua's doing and what the Lord's doing. Joshua doesn't just arrive and then stand still and say, Okay, God, get them. Joshua has to initiate the fight. Joshua has to get out there and tackle this tough situation, this dangerous situation. He has to give it all he has. He has to push his men to the limit. And he does exactly that. But he's not relying on his men. He's relying on the Lord's promise to be with him. And as Joshua fights, God fights on behalf of Joshua. The Lord discomforted them. Uh, Joshua pushing his troops to the limit, as he should. God performing as he had promised and blessing Joshua's efforts. Now, uh, you find this, uh, the Lord entering into this fight a little more obviously than normal as he cast stones down from heaven. Verse 11. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon, the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah. And they died. They were more which died from the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with a sword. What a scene. I mean, look at this thing. Here's these huge hailstones. Uh, coming down from heaven as if the Lord's leaning over the parapets of heaven and says, I'll get this and Joshua. And uh, Joshua says, way to go, God. And uh, here we go. This is a dramatic scene here. Now, uh, at this point, Joshua does an astounding thing. He realizes what a critical battle this is. If, I, if we can do this one, and keep it going, we're going to defeat them, and from this point on, we'll be in the mop-up operations. But the sun's going down. And if the sun goes down, they're going to escape, and then we'll have to do this all over again. I need the sun not to go down. I need the sun to stand still. Now, verse 12, Then Joshua, then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of the heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like it before or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel." Goodness gracious, what a, what a command. Son, stand thou still. Now, we see the reason for it. He needs more time. But what was the rationale? How did he dare 
give such a command. And really it's in the nature of a request. You know, he says, to the Lord, son, stand thou still. It's a request, but still it's so bold. How in the world did he have the courage or the boldness to do that? Well, God had promised to be with him. And God was fulfilling the promise. God was fighting with him. And and he could just see God's hand here with him. God is obviously with him in this thing. And uh, Matthew Henry says that no doubt Joshua had an extraordinary impression on his spirit prompting him to desire this miracle, else it would have been presumption in him to expect it. What God will give, he inclines the heart of his praying people to ask. Now, he asked it, and the sun stays still. The moon was coming up, the sun was going down, and they stopped for a whole day until they won this tremendous victory. Now, of course, that's a little bit of a difficulty. If you are of an inquiring mind and you read that in the Bible, you say, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now, let's see. Did the earth quit rope? Earth quit? I mean, there's such a thing as miracles, and then there's miracles. That's about 10 million miracles involved in that one. And so you would have those who would uh, say, well, I think this is just a poetic way of saying that he uh, let them accomplish as much in a day as they could have done in two days. No, that's not a poetic way of saying it. Maybe that there was a poem written about it and recorded in the book of Jasher, which we don't have. Uh, but, uh, you know, it says that the moon stood still and the sun stood still for a whole day. You get, uh, you can't water it down. You say, I just, uh, I have trouble with that. I mean, you've got laws of nature and, uh, and uh, how do you handle it? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Undeceptions, has a chapter, Religion and Science. And he talks about having a conversation with uh, someone who's arguing about God, uh, about, after all, you just can't have miracles because nature runs in an orderly way. And, he's, and uh, this person says, but modern science has shown there's no such thing as miracles. And uh, he says, really? Which of the sciences? Well, uh, I can't give you chapter and memory from uh, chapter and verse from memory. But don't you see, said I, that science could never show anything of the sort? Well, why not? Because science studies nature. And the question is whether there's anything besides nature that exists. Anything outside, how you could you find that out by studying nature? Of course, you can find it out if you study nature because... Everything in nature is designed. You're designed. And wherever you got design, you got to have a designer. Any engineers here? Anywhere you got design, you got to have a designer. And whatever did the designing, designed you. And you're a person. And you can't have an it make a you. Think about that. Now, uh, but don't you see, I said, science never could show anything of that sort. But don't we find out that nature must work in an absolute fixed way? I mean, the laws of nature tell us not merely about how things do happen, but how they must happen. No power could alter them. How do you mean? Said I. Well, look here, said he. 
Couldn't this something outside that you talk about make two and two five? No. All right. When I think of the laws of nature, I like that. Two and, uh, two and two make four. And the idea of that being altered is as absurd as the altering of the laws of arithmetic. Half a moment, said I. Suppose you put sixpence into a drawer today and sixpence into the same drawer tomorrow. Do the laws of arithmetic make it certain you'll find a shilling's worth the day after? Of course, said he, provided no one's been tampering with the drawer. Ah, but that's the whole point, said I. The laws of arithmetic can tell you what you'll find with absolute certainty, provided there's been no interference. But the thief won't, but if a thief has been at the drawer, of course, you'll get a different result. The thief won't have broken the laws of arithmetic, only the laws of England. Now, aren't the laws of nature much in the same boat? Don't they tell you what will happen provided there's been no interference? And God can interfere any time he wants to. Uh, That's what you're dealing with here. As the one who created the universe, controls the universe. The uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, our denomination, the doctrinal standard, says that uh, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet he's free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. I was reading a recent book about philosophers who believe, philosophers who have come to faith in Jesus Christ to teach at various universities around the country. And uh, one such man is a man by the name of Plantinger, who taught it or teaches at uh, Calvin College up in Grand Rapids. And he tells how that uh, when as a student he went to Harvard, his faith was really under severe attack. And he began wavering and questioning. And uh, all of a sudden, God opened the drawer and reached in. One night, as he's walking back to his room, he said, One gloomy evening in January, I was returning from dinner, and uh, it was a dark, windy, rainy, nasty, but suddenly it was as if the heavens opened. I heard, so it seemed, music of overwhelming power and grandeur and sweetness. There was light of unimaginable splendor and beauty. It seemed I could see into heaven itself. And I suddenly saw or perhaps felt with great clarity and persuasion and conviction that the Lord was really there and was all that I had thought he was. God just saw fit to interfere in an unusual way to reassure his struggling servant there. God can open the drawer whenever he sees fit. He can stop the stun whenever he sees fit. Now, it could be that he, that he uh, <clears throat> bent the rays. He deflected the rays of light. They're bent every day anyway, and he may just have bent them a little more. And uh, there are different ways he could have done it. We don't know how he did the miracle. Uh, you have an interesting parallel over in Isaiah 38 where Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, is sick. And God sends Isaiah to tell him to set his house in order. He's going to die. And Hezekiah doesn't want to die. And he, he cries and asks the Lord to extend his life. And the Lord sends Isaiah back and says, Tell him that I will give him 15 more years. And uh, tell him that uh, he can ask a sign 
uh, whether he'd like the, the sun to go forward on the sundial, the shadow to go forward 10 degrees or back up 10 degrees. And so uh, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, which way would you like the sun to move? He said, well, small thing for it to go forward. Let it back up. All right. And so it goes back 10 degrees. Again, that could have been refraction, a miracle of the bending of light rays. But you have something similar there in the book of Isaiah. The real message of this passage is the power of prayer. Verse 14, There was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. The Lord hearkening to man. Man asking and God acting. The power of prayer. And you and I have that same access through Jesus Christ. Uh, the same privilege of asking for miracles. For things to happen. Um, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul tells the Ephesians that he is praying for them that God will open their eyes. They're already open in a sense of they believe in Christ, as they say. But he'd open them to understand now that they're Christians what they have in Christ Jesus. And he says, The eyes of your faith being open that you may, the eyes of your understanding being open that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the exceeding, uh, what is the, uh, riches of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, both in this world and the world which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. He says, And you are raised with him in chapter 2. You are raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. You're united to Jesus Christ. You are powerful. He, he said, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? I have access to him. I'm united to him. And so I need to know that so that I'll begin to draw on that power in the battle. And step out courageously tackling these enemies, trusting God to throw down those hailstones or whatever he needs to do to act in this great battle for the souls of men. Uh, but my, my part is faith, to step out in faith. Jesus said, uh, if you say to that mountain, be thou removed and do not doubt in your heart, but believe, it will remove according to your faith be it done unto you. You're reading missionary biographies, aren't you? Aren't you? And uh, a biography that's not a missionary biography, but closely related, the biography of George Mueller. If you never read George Mueller's biography, uh, give yourself an F and go get it. Uh, you are undereducated as a Christian if you've never read George Mueller's biography. A number of biographies about him out. And uh, Mueller ran an orphanage on prayer. Tremendous. Man of faith. One occasion, Mueller was crossing the ocean, going to uh, Canada from England, and had a series of lectures he's supposed to give. A fog sets in. And they should load the ship. They didn't have radar in those days. And Mueller goes to the captain and says, Captain, you've sold the ship. He said, well, I have to, the fog. And he said, well, I'm doing Canada on such and such a date, and I'm to give this series of lectures. And the captain said, I'm sorry, you won't be there. This, I've been saying these seas 20 years. When a fog like this comes, it's here for a while. And 
it'd have to lift immediately for us to make it. He said, I understand. Let's go down to your wardroom and pray. The captain was a Christian. He didn't much feel about praying about the fog. He did want to humor this guy. So they go down there and shut the door. And Mueller says, let's pray. He says, dear God, I believe you made that appointment. I believe you mean me to keep it. The captain says, in order to do that, the fog has to lift immediately. And you're my heavenly father. You control all things. And father, I ask that within five minutes you would lift the fog. Thank you. And the captain began to pray. Dear God, Mueller said, I don't want you to pray. There are two reasons I don't want you to pray. Number one, you don't believe God's going to do it. Number two, I believe God's done it. Let's open the door and see. Open the door and the fog was lifted. I know that sounds like a tall story. You read this book. Uh, (laughs) He lived that way 70 some odd years and made a tremendous impact. Uh, Faith. Think of the faith... And we're going to see a video that will incorporate uh, Mo Leverett, this work at Desire Street in just a minute, and uh, Kedrick, who shared with us. Uh, think of the faith it took for Mo Leverett to move his family into Desire Street project there. But he moved in there trusting God's promise to be with him and that God would act through him. And a miracle of a changed life like we just saw, that's a bigger miracle than the sun standing still. That's a much bigger miracle. And we need a lot of those miracles. And you and I can be part of those miracles. We can see those kind of miracles happening as we step out trusting God to use us. Uh, that's what this passage is all about, who you are in Christ. Uh, there's the slaughter of the kings in uh, verse 16. You have... Uh, the kings it says the five kings fled, hid themselves in a cave. Verse 24, it came to pass that they brought out the kings unto Joshua. Joshua called all the men of Israel, said unto the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. They came near and put their feet upon the necks of the kings. He didn't do this just to humiliate the kings. He did it to say, Let this picture be in your mind of God being with you as you go into this thing and the victories he's going to give you. And verse 25, Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of a good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them. Uh, For the Christian, the tremendous potential that every Christian possesses to advance the kingdom of God in himself and through himself. Go into all the world. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit. Those promises are made to every Christian. And uh, for the non-Christian, the tremendous danger of being on the opposing side. Look at the force that's lined up against you. You know, another day is mentioned in Scripture when it'll be dark, I mean be light at evening time. That's mentioned over in uh, the book of Zechariah where... Uh, Zechariah talks about the return of Christ, and he puts it like this. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, speaking of the nations that surround Jerusalem on the last day. As he fought in the day of battle, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And uh, the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with him. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear in the dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. It shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. book of uh, Revelation talks about that day. 
in the sixth chapter, it says, And the heaven departed as a scroll that was rolled up, and every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and uh, the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to abide? Who shall be able to stand? There's a Negro spiritual based on that said, Run to the rock to hide my face. The rock's going to say, No hiding place. There's nowhere to hide. You don't want to be found on the opposing side. Come to Christ. Uh, Enter into an alliance with Joshua and his invading army. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, if you're a Christian, there may be some something the Lord's calling you to do, something to tackle in your life or in your work or whatever it may be, an opportunity to really advance His cause, and yet you, you shrink back. Step out in faith. Expect Him to be with you. Tackle it. Maybe that you're here and you've never really surrendered to Jesus Christ. He's not your master. You've never trusted him to forgive you as a gift based on his death. But you're prepared to do that today. If that's the case, pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for the offer of entering into a covenant with you. I accept that offer. I surrender my will. I trust you to come and live in me and empower me. Amen.